Welcome to Cardio Radio, a podcast of the Ohio Cardiovascular and Diabetes Health Collaborative, also known as Cardio. This is Dr. Michael Constan from the Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, and I serve as a principal investigator for Cardio, a statewide network of Ohio's seven medical schools. Cardio is funded by the Ohio Department of Medicaid and shares best practices to improve cardiovascular health and diabetes outcomes and to eliminate health disparities in Ohio's Medicaid population. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. I am Elise Karen, Practice Improvement Coaching Lead for Cardio's Team Best Practices and Associate Professor of Medicine at Case Western Reserve University. Today's podcast will focus on the unique health care needs of rural communities, including special considerations for providing telehealth services. The interview will focus specifically on cardiovascular and diabetes health, as well as behavioral health. With me today are Dr. L. Austin Fredrickson and Dr. Madri Metla. Dr. Fredrickson is a board-certified general internist at Salem Regional Medical Center in Salem, Ohio. He graduated from Northeast Ohio Medical University, or Neomed, and completed an internal medicine residency at Summa Akron City Hospital and a primary care training and enhancement faculty fellowship at Neomed. He practices predominantly outpatient medicine in his hometown of Salem, Ohio, and serves as medical director of the Columbiana County Board of Developmental Disabilities. He is an assistant professor of internal medicine at Neomed, where he serves as internal medicine core faculty, internal medicine update conference co-chair, and course director. He precepts students of Neomed's Rural Pathway and Youngstown State University's BachMed program. Dr. Madri Metla is a board-certified psychiatrist at Signature Health, Inc., and is the associate medical director of psychiatry at Signature Health Ashtabula. She attended medical school at Rajiv Gandhi University in India and completed a residency in adult psychiatry and a fellowship in child and adolescent psychiatry at Case Western Reserve University. She practices predominantly outpatient child and adolescent psychiatry as well as adult psychiatry at Signature Health in Ashtabula and Willoughby, Ohio. She is also a certified medication-assisted treatment provider for opioid use disorders. She's on the Quality Improvement Committee and the Disruptive Behavior Committee at Signature Health. She also serves on the Membership Committee of the Ohio Psychiatric Physicians Association. Welcome, Drs. Fredrickson and Dr. Metla. So, Dr. Fredrickson, I'm going to start with you. What exactly is rural medicine? So rural's tougher to define than medicine, right? Medicine's just taking care of patients, but we delineate out who is rural because there are health disparities associated with rural patients. Uh, governmental agencies typically will define a certain population density or a certain population as rural, and that's fine, and, and that can be useful. But I like what the National Rural Health Association does, which is say, define rural with intentionality. So use it for the program that you're going to design to service rural patients or rural communities. So when we think about rural patients, you know if you take care of them, and you know if you're a rural health doctor, because you're typically going to be taking care of patients who unfortunately are older, sicker, and more vulnerable than some of their urban counterparts. Rural patients generally have fewer services available to them and just fewer buildings or medical complexes in their county. When I think about rural patients, only about one out of five patients nationally are rural, okay? The rest are going to be urban or suburban. And really, they're, they have two major health discrepancies, accessibility and availability, right? So accessibility is all about 
can they access healthcare? And unfortunately, we know that 60% per se of trauma deaths occur in rural America, even though only 20% of people live there. And it just underscores that rural patients have to travel twice as far just to get to the closest hospital so that people in these combine accidents or get crushed by a tractor aren't able to get to the same access of care as some of their more urban or suburban counterparts. And when we think about availability, I think about clinician shortages. So specifically in primary care, family docs are only 15% of the U.S. workforce, but provide almost half, 42% of rural care. So if you're thinking of 100,000 patients in an urban area, per 100,000 patients, you'll have about 300 physicians, whereas rural patients only have 130. In urban areas, they'll have 263 specialists, and rural only have 30. There is a huge, huge lack of not only having access to doctors, but specifically specialists. So patients are much more reliant on their primary care doc to get the care that they need. They're more likely to be on Medicaid. They're more likely to have diabetes, 17% higher in prevalence than compared to their urban counterparts. They're more likely to have heart disease, and they're more likely to die from heart disease, potentially because of that distance to heart centers or because of the high rates of smoking higher than urban urban areas or higher rates of diabetes. And they're more likely to commit suicide, either because of more access to guns or lack of psych professionals. I know uh, my colleague can speak to. Dr. Metara Metla, do you have anything you want to add? Yes, Alice. First of all, thank you for having me on the podcast. To add to the numbers that Dr. Fredrickson has just mentioned, in a 2019 national survey, about 21% of rural adults have reported any kind of mental illness, and that is about one in five rural adults. And in addition to that, about 5% of the rural adult population also have had serious suicidal thoughts during that same year in 2019. And another major issue that ties into mental health is the substance use issues. There are comparisons between rural and urban areas in terms of substance use. So the findings are in general The cigarette smoking and smokeless tobacco use, for example, are slightly higher in rural communities than in urban communities, whereas alcohol use was mostly comparable. When it comes to rural communities, where they suffer the most is with methamphetamine use, which is almost double that of urban areas. That's huge. And as Dr. Fredrickson has already mentioned, lack of accessibility and availability is definitely contributing to the health disparities. Um, And in September 2020, the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, designated about 3,400 areas in rural communities as having mental health professional shortages. And that means it would take about close to 1,700 practitioners to cover these areas. So that is a huge gap in mental health services between the rural and urban areas also. Dr. Fredrickson, What is telemedicine and what role has it played during the COVID-19 pandemic? So telemedicine, uh, I like Medicare's definition. They say it's an exchange of medical information from one side to another through electronic communication to improve a patient's health. 
And when you think about telemedicine, that means it could be an audio only, just like a podcast or a telephone call. It's a way to actually listen to and speak to a patient. It could be visual, so something like a smartphone or a computer where you have a camera and can actively talk to people and uh, visualize them for an examination. So it's using these electronic formats where you can do it either synchronously, uh, speaking directly to them and allowing them to respond, or asynchronously, especially as we're looking at more smart gadgets that can send blood pressure readings or glucometer readings directly to their healthcare clinician. So that allows a lot of remote monitoring. It's been taking form for years, but it had to skyrocket during the COVID-19 pandemic. So this pandemic has increased somewhere between 50 and 175 times the number of patients using telehealth, depending on what resource you use. But there's a huge increase of it. Because people have had to use it both clinically for their own safety and their patient safety and financially, because for at least early in the COVID pandemic, there were a whole lot of reasons people weren't seeking care in person. Now a majority of providers find it uh, to be favorable than they did before. And even more, 64% are more comfortable using it than before simply because they've had to. And it's been great because if patients are either in isolation or in quarantine, or if you need to triage patients, specifically if you're concerned for an infectious disease like the coronavirus, or just for numerous other conditions, regardless of their isolation or quarantine status, you're still able to access patients where in the old school days, you couldn't have somebody come into the office without major preventative uh, personal protective equipment. Downside is there's a lot of controversies with it. So yeah, is it going to be HIPAA compliant? Are people using HIPAA approved devices? Does it lead to overprescription of antibiotics or other medications when, hey, I'm not sure if it's just the sniffles and I can't examine them, so I'm going to cover more bases than I would otherwise? Or Conversely, are you underprescribing? If you're reliant on a patient's own blood pressure cuff, do you think that those higher numbers are the result of an error? Or do you think if they just had an oscillated blood pressure in the office, it wouldn't be so bad? Are we going to hold off on using medications that we'd be much more comfortable with when we have them in person? For rural patients, it's been really helpful to help address some of the access and availability issues because now those specialists, which they couldn't find before, are more available when you can get them on the phone or get them on your smartphone. However, we'll get into later, I'm sure, some of the barriers that the rural patients have getting the technology to use telemedicine. Dr. Metara Metla, how has behavioral health care been affected by telemedicine in the COVID-19 pandemic? I can speak for our experiences at Signature Health. At Signature Health, we were already doing some telehealth even before the COVID-19 pandemic. But it was mostly a matter of convenience and availability in our underserved areas. But once the global health emergency hit last year, we very swiftly moved to telehealth across the board in all the locations, urban as well as rural. And providers and patients have adapted so quickly. And in fact, we have experienced that patients have been more compliant since they have more access in the comfort of their homes. And they're also getting timely care. Prior to COVID-19, overall, like less than 10% of the U.S. population and only 18% of the providers were engaging in telehealth services. I do not have specific numbers, but obviously this has exploded very much in the past year and continues to grow. And we definitely see a need for continued telemedicine beyond this pandemic. 
So Dr. Fredrickson, how has COVID-19 changed rural health disparities for those with cardiovascular and diabetes health conditions? Well, specifically for rural patients, even before the pandemic, things have not been good. And this is a big problem because about 40% of rural hospitals at baseline before the COVID pandemic were unprofitable. And it's an even bigger problem than just the health of the patients who are served by these rural hospitals, which we've already established, have underlying disparities that even getting to those rural hospitals is much less of an easy thing to do than their urban counterparts. So they have baseline transportation and other issues, but it's also a big economic issue for the communities where these hospitals are served. So they're usually one of the largest employers in in my own county, in Columbiana County, our hospital that I work for is the largest employer. So this gives access to jobs and, and to insurance to a whole lot of people who are able to work in these rural communities that otherwise may not be able to be radiology techs or surgical techs or nurses, and now can do it in their backyard taking care of their neighbors. When we think about cardiac or diabetic conditions specifically, basically, even before the pandemic, we knew that there were increased risks of cardiac deaths, increased excess deaths from the five leading cause of death in rural compared to urban areas. And if you looked at the COVID-19 pandemic, all through the fall, basically, of the red zone counties, the highest risk counties, the majority were rural. There were much more rural red zones in through the fall than there were urban, and that trend had continued even up until now. And so long-term deaths of undertreated cardiac or diabetic conditions are going to unfortunately have to be seen. We know that Quest, for example, in those first two months of March and April, back in 2020 when the COVID pandemic was the worst, A1C testing dropped to a third of what it was typically. So 66% drop in A1C. And we know that if you don't check your A1C compared to those who do, your A1C is going to go up on average by almost a point. There was somewhere between 0.7 and 0.8 points higher if you're missing visits by not checking A1Cs. And we know that many patients miss them. And we know that not just A1C and diabetes checks were decreased. About 38% reduction was seen in catheterizations the lab, the STEMI protocols, so the actual heart attack STEMI protocols, 38% drop during that same period in the early COVID pandemic. So unfortunately, we know already that the data is going to point us toward worse outcomes in both of these fields. We just don't know to what extent yet. Dr. Menaramitla, what barriers have you seen with the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic and behavioral health? There are obviously multiple barriers to care. You can start off with saying, first of all, the stigma and the difficulty with acceptance of mental health issues in the rural communities. I think telemedicine has been a little bit helpful in removing that stigma since patients are not physically coming into the offices and they can talk about their mental health issues from the comfort of their homes. But although once someone accepts and is willing to engage in mental health treatment, and telehealth can be a wonderful thing that they can access, the issues of connectivity and access to internet are huge barriers in rural communities. When you're an individual who is already at a certain level of hesitancy reaching out to mental health professionals, imagine having to discuss your most sensitive and personal issues via a video call, or worse, a phone call with someone sometimes you might not have ever met. So sometimes when we establish that relationship and we start connecting, we have experienced interruptions in the connectivity, 
and that can completely shift the focus away from an important conversation with the patient that we are having at the moment. So the internet and the Wi-Fi connections that we in the urban areas take for granted are still a big hurdle when it comes to rural communities. And here as a child psychiatrist, I do feel compelled to talk a little bit about children and adolescent population who are also much affected by this pandemic. Social isolation and lack of structure, for example, and lack of support from the school in terms of either academic support or counseling services and nutritional services are big contributors to their ongoing mental health problems for kids who already have those issues. And we have also seen an increase in new cases with mental health issues. So based on our experiences some, and some recent articles that we have seen, there are mixed reactions to telemedicine from children. For example, like many kids who are tech savvy and are fascinated by the concept of telemedicine in the comfort of their own space, they have been really cooperative in treatment and engaging. But on the same note, there are also barriers to delivering telehealth to children in rural communities based on a lot of psychosocial factors, like it depends on the level of family literacy, parental involvement, and home environment in some cases, which can negatively affect the children that are participating in telehealth, and it does not help them participate in an uninterrupted manner via telemedicine. So, Dr. Metaramatla, what are some unique characteristics of rural patients we should know about? When it comes to rural population, I think health literacy is something that we want to talk about and health numeracy. So what do they mean? What is health literacy and what is health numeracy? So it's defined actually as health literacy is the degree to which the individuals have the capacity to obtain, process and understand basic health information and the services needed to make appropriate healthcare decisions. And health numeracy is a concept where it is the ability to access and process and interpret and communicate on numerical and graphical and statistical health information. So while there is relationship between educational attainment and health literacy, it is found that it's not the only factor that affects the health literacy. There are well-documented factors including lower income, mental and physical conditions that impair cognitive abilities and communication abilities, ethnicity, age, and non-English speaking background in an English speaking country can also contribute to a less of a health literacy. And the other factors could be the geographic isolation, local health responses, the social structure and the influences, and the way they obtain the information and process and use the health information. You know, in rural communities, they also have many distinctive cultures and attitudes that are associated with health and the belief and practices that might also contribute to sometimes poorer health outcomes. So in essence, although the fact that rurality is not typically the only reason for health literacy disparity, a systemic review of multiple sites in the past has found that rural populations tend to have lower health literacy than their urban counterparts. Dr. Fredrickson, do you have anything to add? There aren't specialists to the degree there are in other places. So if your main doc, who you've been seeing for a long time, you trust, you like, you respect, you're going to go to them for everything. So if our co-pays to go to a specialist, and if we got to go an hour away to a big city to see them, we're going to have that PCP do as much for me and my family as I possibly can. So I think when we think about the rural patients, that reliance on primary care cannot be overstated. So Dr. Fredrickson, 
What are the best practices when using telemedicine, especially for rural patients? So specifically for rural patients, but for all patients, you got to let them know, one, how to access it. Hey, are you going to get a phone call at nine o'clock? Or, hey, when we catch up with patients, we'll call you later in the morning. Or do we have an appointment where you have to be sitting in front of your computer? Do you have to have your smartphone available? Do you have to download an app ahead of time? Do you have to give access to your microphone through your system preferences? How are you going to actually connect at what time and with whom? And the biggest thing that I found is they got to know that this isn't just a courtesy call the way that they might have done. Hey, how'd everything go with surgery? No, no, this is this is a billable appointment in your insurance or you will be charged for this telemedicine encounter. And it's your responsibility to know what those charges are so that you you don't get a surprise bill here in a couple months once you're processed. So once patients realize that, they may be more or less hesitant to uh, involve themselves in telemedicine. For the providers, you got to make sure that you have what you need. Are you just going to be calling people? Or are you going to need the same equipment that everyone else does? So making sure there are clear expectations for both the docs and the patients is paramount. Okay. I like to actually triage out the rooming criteria for the staff. So generally, in when people come in, it's your medical assistant or your LPN who's bringing them in and saying, well, Mrs. Jones, what's going on? What do you got here today? Well, that same process still needs to be put in. There's still a lot that each system mandates that we get in each encounter. And they can prep those charts and get things ready for you so that you can fly through your encounters with much more efficacy than you would otherwise. A usual dot phrase stating, hey, we're in a public health emergency and this is due to the COVID-19 or whatever other qualification may be uh, useful to have here as well. At the very beginning of that encounter, you may only see the patient because one, they're usually holding it way too close to their face anyway. And you say, hey, scoot back there. Okay, Mr. Jones, what, what, who else is listening to me? Because unlike a room, you don't know who else is sitting there. So if their daughter, the healthcare power of attorney is, you want to identify that. You want to know who they are and do introductions that way. Otherwise, you can really quickly uh, get into some trouble. And the biggest thing that I really struggle with when people aren't here is the physical exam and not having access to vitals. So what we do is, hey, even when they're in the office, teach them how to do their vitals and show them, walk them through the exam. And the Journal of the American Medical Association, many others have come up with a lot of great ways to do the physical exam component. But just simply having a medical assistant say, look, this is your home blood pressure cuff. Put it on, hit the power button. Here is a pulse oximeter. It gives you your pulse. It gives you your oxygen concentration. You tell me that when I call you, boom, you have a lot of vitals, specifically if you're worried about COVID-19 triaging. So patients can learn those or their, their caregivers can learn those really easily. The same patients may need some help when they're actually getting involved in tech. So grandma might not know how to use a smartphone, but her grandson does and he lives next door so he can walk over and give her her smartphone and say, hey doc, here you go when it's time. Unfortunately, broadband access is a big problem in rural medicine as it is in urban and other areas, but there are free Wi-Fi hotspots. So McDonald's has free Wi-Fi for a lot of people. And some of my patients come from Pennsylvania or West Virginia. They're an hour away and they don't have rural medicine. It's a lot easier for them to go to McDonald's and get access than it is to come all the way up to see their doc. So those are some of the biggest pearls that I've learned this year, making sure that you have dot phrases, making uh, saying, hey, this is what I've done in the encounter. I, I am using this modality. We got to write down, oh, I'm using uh, FaceTime or oh, I'm using uh, Doximity and how much time we spent with the patient, depending on how you're billing for the encounter. Those are things you just got to do every time. Separately, 
there's concerns that you don't build the same rapport through telemedicine that you would in person. And that's fair because you don't have the same ability to show all of those nonverbal cues that you would when you're in the room with a person. When we talk about Zoom fatigue that people are saying, oh, you have to smile more, you have to inflect more in your voice, the same thing can be found in telemedicine where the clinicians using it feel more exhausted because they're trying to put more into what they're sharing verbally and what can be seen in the camera lens. So building rapport is going to be tough, especially as more first patients access their healthcare and don't have the long-acting relationship or the long-standing relationship that rural medicine patients in particular covet. Dr. Metarametla, do you have anything to add? Yeah, sure. I would add that we have also a need to bear in mind the needs of non-English speaking population, particularly in rural areas. What I have experienced is in many offices, in primary care offices, they may not have translation services. So there's a definitely a barrier, especially when you are doing telehealth. So making sure that they have the translation services is very important for this sector of the population. And for example, at Signature Health, we have made accommodations for people to come to the office while the providers are still not in the offices just to use the video equipment in the privacy of the office and also accommodate them for not having the internet connection at home. So we take all sorts of precautionary safety measures uh, when they're coming in both for the patients as well as the staff who are on site um, screening for symptoms of COVID-19 and providing all the equipment um, as they enter the building and talking about privacy issues, that is an issue. We have to always make sure who the patients are with. And in particular, our child population, they are completely with different family members at different times because sometimes they take it for granted that it's the matter of the doctor calling and we are just going to get on the phone no matter where they are. It could be in the swimming pool. It could be in the grocery store. So we try to help them understand how important it is to be present for their appointments. And we tend to prep them beforehand with our um, LPNs calling them and making arrangements for them to be in a safe and secure place. The other thing we do at Signature Health is we have accommodated patients coming to the office to use the equipment to do telemedicine while the providers are at home. We take all sorts of safety precautions when they're coming in, both for the patients as well as the staff involved, and accommodate them with secure computer systems to access their providers. So what do you do when those translation services aren't available? So fortunately, uh, everybody's got to have some translation services available. And if you're not affiliated with one of the big hospital systems that gives you programmatic support or even physical interpreters to come out, uh, then you pull out of your own private pocket uh, pay to contract either with a local interpreter, which can be difficult to find. So most of the time people are using the software. At Signature Health, actually, we use something called My Accessible Real-Time Trusted Interpreter, in short, MARTI. So they can be both video availability as well as available on the audio when the patients are in the office or even at home. The only disadvantage is sometimes we have difficulty with the three-way calling, but most of the time we are successful with that. So Dr. Metaramatla, what are some of the limitations of telemedicine? Particularly, I can talk some of the limitations in mental health, for example. As we mentioned before, while telemedicine is a beautiful thing to access 
it is very difficult for people with chemical dependency, for example. Patients cannot engage in group therapy and some patients rely heavily on the intensive outpatient programs to maintain their sobriety and draw support from peers and their group leaders. In that context, I would like to say that according to a recent provisional data from CDC, definitely the overdose deaths have increased during the COVID-19 pandemic. There are no concrete numbers yet, but there were about 81,000 drug overdose deaths that occurred in the United States in the 12 months ending in May 2020, which are the highest numbers of overdose deaths ever recorded in a 12-month period, according to the CDC. And that's, that's definitely a limitation with telemedicine, not being able to provide services to this population as much as they need. In mental health, the other biggest issue is not having face-to-face -face contact is definitely a deterrent to some patients because they heavily rely on that relationship, especially with their counselors or their doctors in some cases. So mental health telemedicine also presents a unique challenge regarding safety issues. For instance, what do you do if a remote client is exhibiting suicide symptoms and how do you manage these crises? So different agencies, I'm sure, have developed their own protocols how to deal with them. At Signature Health, we have developed a protocol with doing assessments remotely, and we do a, a big teamwork with people on-site and people off-site, and also using community resources to reach out to patients who are having mental health crises. And we have been mostly very successful with that. And the American Psychiatric Association as well as the American Psychological Association have come up with guidelines on how to deal with these mental health crises via telehealth. So those would be great resources to look up. Dr. Fredrickson, what does the future of telemedicine for rural patients look like? Well, a lot depends on what happens with the pandemic. At the risk of dating the podcast here, Department of Health and Human Services just extended out the public health emergency due to the COVID-19 pandemic up to April 21st. 2021. And through that time, audio-only visits are still going to be reimbursed at a rate relative to their in-person visits. Um, unfortunately, before the pandemic and potentially after the pandemic, those reimbursement rates were so low that many practices and health systems couldn't afford to have their clinicians partake in them as part of routine practice. In rural America, a lot of people don't have access to either the equipment, a smartphone or a laptop or a computer of some sort to get those visual uh, visits. They may not even have cellular, uh, let alone a landline, but more people in my practice, but in rural America have access to the telephone. So I think a big piece going forward is to see how long we can still allow telephone or audio only visits to be reimbursed at a rate, a higher rate than they were previously. Right now, a lot of the national bodies are actually advocating for a series of things to be fixed in legislation. So the American Heart Association and the American Academy of Nurse Practitioners and the American Academy of Neurology all sent a big letter to Congress that basically says, hey, if you don't extend this particular payment structure, our patients outside of the very few who actually have coverages because of some rural areas that do get coverage are going to be hurt from it. And the American Medical Association has put forth a multifaceted plan to say, hey, during this pandemic, but certainly um, certainly in the pandemic, but even afterward, make sure we get broad coverage for all the telemedicine and allow all of these insurances to pay for all of the modalities, including audio-only visits. Suspend requirements for 
for existing patient physician relationships or else how else are we going to get new specialists or new doctors on the case if you can't see them? And make sure that you pay them in the same rate as in-person visits. So most of these have been implemented and are actively being addressed. However, what happens beyond April 21st is still a legislative mystery. We do know that if we continue to use telemedicine based on professional estimates, up to one-fifth of all ED visits could be avoided. The emergency rooms could be 20% less. 24% of healthcare office visits could be delivered virtually. Again, improving the amount of time that patients can spend in their jobs and improving the efficacy of several offices. 35% of regular home health attendants could actually be performed virtually. And if you think about the entire outpatient volume, maybe up to 2% of it could be shifted to the home setting. So if you think of the billions and billions that we spend in healthcare, if we can shift percentages of it, there is a big reason, there is a big imperative for us to look for it. A lot of this is in Congress, and we don't have clear answers yet. But we do know that with the new evaluation and management coding and documentation uh, criteria starting in 2021, there will be, based on the increased emphasis on the medical decision-making portion for medicine subspecialties, and I include family medicine and primary care in that, a lot more reasons, or there will be many more reasons to use telemedicine because you can hit a many components for a lot of visits like a migraine or a follow-up for your depression medication using audio or audiovisual only uh, feedback, a lot of counseling, a lot of things that you can do that way. And I think the last thing we got to do is continue to teach our healthcare learners. So when I'm teaching at Neomed, now more than ever, we're talking about how can you do this when it is a virtual encounter? How can you implement this in telemedicine? And it had been for years slowly starting to teach this way, but now it's an imperative, not just, hey, when you graduate one day, but now when you're on your clerkships and electives, how are you going to be interacting with patients virtually? What are the best practices? And how are you going to transform it for the next generation of healthcare leaders? Dr. Mitterumetla, do you have anything to add? As a response to COVID-19, obviously one of the most evident and perhaps impactful changes is the explosion in telehealth in general. So the exciting news is that Ohio Medicaid had decided last week to permanently allow visits to be conducted via telemedicine, even beyond the current public health emergency. So I'm hoping that this would help us talk about how to effectively provide telemedicine rather than when to provide or where to provide telemedicine. And, you know, there are actually two previous evidence-based reviews on telehealth, one in 2016 and one in 2019. Um, so recently, based on those two reviews, in May 2020, there was a white paper commentary on the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality Evidence. And the authors have put the findings of these two evidence-based reports about the effectiveness of telehealth. So what they have found actually is, one of the reports showed that the outcomes with telehealth are as good or better than usual care, and it has improved satisfaction and outcomes. It also supported particularly telehealth benefits for specific uses in psychotherapy, and it was very promising. And the second report has focused on the technology to facilitate the collaboration among the clinicians. At that time, it was talking about 
how are they using the technology to collaborate among physicians, which means in the pre-COVID era, what was happening was the telehealth was a choice for patients and clinicians, which was used when in-person access became an issue. So most of the telehealth visits were used to replace the in-person visits with specialists. It was not the mainstream treatment. So, but as we know, times and needs have changed. And in the current environment, both the provider goals and the patient goals are very different, I think. So with the available evidence, we definitely cannot promise that the telehealth will be the magic bullet to solve all the complexities of healthcare system. But I think it is reassuring that there is evidence-based research showing that telehealth can benefit groups of patients. So, and also for people with economic need, Programs like the FCC-backed Lifeline is providing access to the phones. Things are looking very hopeful for telemedicine. There is very much a need for research evidence about telehealth that can be useful in the future for practice and policy decisions. So I'm really hopeful that this will move forward in the future and will be used much more than what we are right now. Thank you to our featured guests, Dr. Fredrickson and Dr. Mitra Metla, for joining us today. And a special thank you to our listeners for tuning in to Cardio Radio. For more best practices information on integrated behavioral health and primary care, please join us for a special webinar on Wednesday, February 10th at noon. Registration for the event is available at cardio.org. This concludes today's podcast. Be sure to visit cardio.org to learn more about the Ohio Cardiovascular and Diabetes Health Collaborative.